The first scripture reading today is from the Psalms, Psalm number 98, verses 4 to 9. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with a lyra, with the lyra and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who live in it. Let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills sing together for joy at the presence of the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. May God add a blessing to the reading and hearing of this word. Our gospel reading this morning, uh, the revised common lectionary with a calendar that prescribes different texts for different Sundays, um, points us today to the story of John the Baptist. Um, and I wanted to share with you a passage from Matthew's Gospel where Jesus is talking about John the Baptist, but I think it might be a helpful reminder maybe to hear a little bit about John the Baptist first. So this morning I'm going to read um, from Matthew chapter 3 verses 1 through 6 and then jump ahead to chapter 11 verses 7 through 19. Let's listen for the good news of the Gospel for us here today. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Moving ahead to chapter 11 now. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see, someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who wear soft robes, they're in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is even greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violence take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John came, and... If you're willing to believe it, he is Elijah who is to come. Let anyone with ears listen. But to what will I compare this generation? 
It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to another, to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We wailed and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they said, he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me now in a moment of prayer? Holy Spirit, Holy God, descend upon us now. Bind our hearts in one fellowship that we together may hear your word that we may know its power and its truth. And God, we pray that today may be the day that you move us, that you shake us, that you open our hearts like mighty gates so that you may enter in and make us new. Now may the words of my mouth and indeed the meditations of all of our hearts here be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight. O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. On September 13, 2004, at a live taping of a popular network daytime talk show, 11 people's lives were changed for the better in one of the most iconic moments in television history. In the lead-up to that day, the show's producer had polled ticket holders and identified members of the studio audience who were struggling, uh, struggling particularly with the issue of transportation. Eleven individuals were called out from the audience to share their stories of hardship, and in the climactic moment, each of them was given the keys to a brand new Pontiac G6 sedan. But that was not all. The show's host turned to the audience and told them that there was still one more car to give away to one lucky member of the studio audience, and production assistants came out into the audience carrying trays stacked up with little white boxes tied up with red ribbons on the top. Don't open them yet, the host admonished, and the audience members dutifully followed instructions, though it was clear they were all having a really hard time containing themselves and containing their excitement and anticipation. The tension built for a moment. A drum roll was cued. All right, open your boxes, Oprah Winfrey told her audience. And the first woman opens her boxes and pulls out a set of car keys and looks at them like she's never seen car keys before. And then she looks at her neighbor and her neighbor's holding car keys. And all of a sudden, pandemonium ensues. And Oprah is running around going, you get a car and you get a car and you get a car. Everybody gets a car! Woo! Oprah had to shout over all the screaming because the people watching at home would have had no idea what was going on in the room. So she just kept saying it over again. Everyone gets a car. Everyone gets a car. And the episode ends with the whole studio audience flooding out of the building into a parking lot with rows and rows, 300 cars parked out in a parking lot with, little, with giant red bows on the roofs of the cars. And there's a huge banner on the side of the building. It says, congratulations, your wildest dreams have come true, in letters 10 foot high. Well, friends, today I have a surprise for you. I have good news. I have very good news. Can I get a drum roll? Are you ready? God is with you. Yeah! 
Yes, God is coming into the world. God, the author and creator of the world, the author of the best-selling book of all time, is right here with you in this place right now. God not only knows who you are, God has come to meet you because God loves you and has shown you that love today. God wants to bless you and keep you. God wants to heal you and God wants to save you. You get salvation and you get salvation and you get salvation. You all get salvation. Everybody gets salvation. Woo! Amen. Amen. Maybe you were expecting something else from this sermon. <laughs> but our gospel readings this morning speak to both a deep longing and a deep need, and also the great excitement and the joy that comes with the realization that our needs not only can be met, but are met. In the days of John the Baptist, it said people went in droves to the River Jordan. They went out there looking for something. They were attracted by his simple words, repent for the kingdom of God has come near. They went to hear him speak, but more than that, they went to engage in just a simple ritual of being dipped in the river, of confessing their sins and having them washed away. Sometimes I think we make change and newness and uh, possibilities a little too complicated. We think that it takes something really complicated, that all the pieces have to fall right into place for our lives to be made new and different. But John's message is simple. It's so simple. Just repent and be baptized, and the kingdom of heaven, the love of God, you see, it's already come near. And it's something greater than we can even begin to understand. Earlier this year, a movie came out called The Jesus Revolution. It tells the story of uh, Calvary Chapel in California in the early 1970s and how the minister of this small and declining Baptist church named Chuck Smith helped lead one of the largest revivals in modern Christianity. This change was prompted by a chance meeting between Pastor Chuck and a hippie Jesus freak named Lonnie Frisbee. In the film, the two of them are depicted meeting for the first time across uh, Chuck Smith's kitchen table. Chuck, who's played by Kelsey Grammer, leans back and puts the, uh, his glasses in, in, in his mouth, and he says, tell me about your people. And Lonnie, who is played by Jonathan Rumi, who also happens to be the actor who plays Jesus on the show The Chosen, very confusing, um, he responds. He says, my people, hmm, I like the sound of that. It reminds me of the words of Jesus. To what shall I compare this generation? Lonnie says that from his time in the hate Ashbury, in his view, the hippie generation is really just a bunch of kids on a quest, seeking something truly meaningful, something that can make sense of the chaos of the world, its political turmoil, its emptiness. What hippies are searching for in the, in the sex and the drugs, Lonnie says, what they're searching for is God, but they're looking for it in the wrong places. My people, Lonnie concludes, well, they're a desperate bunch. And desperation, man, there is power in that word. What would it take for you, Chuck Smith, to be desperate? 
What would it take for you, church, to be desperate, hungry enough for the salvation that the good news of Advent would be like a full meal? What does it take to make you thirst for justice enough that the promise that God is coming to rule with righteousness and equity, as the psalmist writes, that that would elicit the same level of excitement and enthusiasm as a new Pontiac? And I know it is not our tradition uh, to be expressive and embodied and emotional people in worship. We leave that to our Pentecostal brothers and sisters to do. But there is something about the way one is moved in body and spirit by the acknowledgement of a deep need for God, that we are on a journey, on a quest, seeking something. When we are truly convicted by it, it really is enough to move us, as it moved the people of Jerusalem and Judea to go out into some place that is unknown and uncomfortable, into the wilderness. And if our need can move us that way, how much more does the good news of God move us? Well, the story goes that young Isaac Watts hated going to the lengthy, dull Anglican church services his parents dragged him to as a teenager, he complained that the people would be chanting the psalms of the Bible that say things like, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth, but they would be doing it to these dull and listless and unfeeling melodies. Isaac Watts's father, like any good parent dealing with a complaining teenager, said, well, you know what? If you think you can do better, why don't you? And so Isaac Watts began to write hymns. He began to write uh, new renditions of the psalms, and he became one of the most prolific hymn writers in the English language, composer of more than 500 hymns, the most famous of which is Joy to the World. It's funny sometimes to realize that the hymns that people often dismiss as old-timey and, and stodgy are basically the equivalent of Christian contemporary music from the 18th century. Uh, Joy to the world, to the Baroque chorus master, sounds like what electric guitar and drum set heavy praise songs sound like to us today. The term carol, in fact, according to Oxford University lecturer and chorus master Andrew Gant, actually comes from a form of boisterous English folk song that was common in that time. It, it, they're the songs that would have verses punctuated by a repetitive refrain. Uh, in that sense, Joy to the World, or songs like Good Christian Friends Rejoice, or The First Noel. These are all textbook examples of a Christmas carol, because they have their verses and their repetitive refrains, right? Repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy. But here's the twist. Joy to the World, Isaac Watts' most popular composition, one of perhaps the most famous Christmas carol of all time, it's not actually a Christmas carol. You ever noticed that it never mentions the birth of Jesus in any of the words? Run through them. We'll, we'll sing them in just a moment, but you can sort of run through it in your head. It, it doesn't, it's not about Christmas. In fact, Joy to the World is Isaac Watts' rendering of the verses from Psalm 98 that Lou read for us earlier. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. In fact, uh, he took these uh, verses and rendered them into an apocalyptic carol 
Because really what he's talking about is not the coming of Jesus at Christmas, but the final judgment of God and the world, the day of the Lord. Now, as I mentioned last week, we often associate words like apocalypse and end times with with destruction and, and, and damnation, but the end time is not an evil time. It's a time when God is bringing the loving, gracious plan that is God's intention to its completion, to its perfection, a plan that has been begun since before time began. What makes joy to the world such a powerful expression of the finality of God's judgment is, I think, that it is not described as something that will happen someday, somewhere in the far-off future. Joy to the world begins with the line, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Sometimes it's has come, but let's be honest, the way it's supposed to be is is come, which is a phrase we use for literally nothing else except maybe for Christmas. Christmas has come. Christmas has come. When else do you use that phrase? But I love that phrase. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. It's an example of my favorite grammatical tense, the present perfect tense. You all have a favorite grammatical tense, I presume. (laughs) I'm not the only one. It's just me. The present perfect tense is my favorite tense because The present perfect tense captures the action of a verb that right now is fully real and fully realized. During the Advent season, we often speak in the language of the present progressive or the future progressive about the ongoing, the soon to be realized, what will be, what what, what is coming. But the mystery of Advent, the mystery especially on Christmas Eve itself, is that the grace of God is both still in the making but already arrived in the present. God's love is a gift that we have received, that we are receiving, that that we and generations still to come will continue to receive. It meets the perennial need of humankind that we often cannot name but deeply feel. And that's what John the Baptist went into the wilderness to declare. And that's what people left there daily routines and regular lives to go into the wilderness to meet him there. And that's what Jesus wants people to remember when he's talking to them about John. He says that that the kingdom of God, the love of God manifested in righteousness and judgment, that thing they really hunger for, it is at hand. It is there for us. And that even John, as great a guy as he is, is not even the least in God's view. It's easy to lose sight of of that promise. It seems so big and impossible. And so we mistakenly quest for the love of God in all the wrong places. And maybe that's not you. Maybe you know the right place to go. Maybe you know that your life and your hopes and your past and present and future are all held in the hands of a loving God. But I guarantee that each and every one of us knows someone, knows someone who is searching, who is seeking, who is hurting, who wants something more than they have, who maybe hasn't heard or hasn't been told or hasn't experienced the love of God. The Apostle Paul in in Romans writes, how can anyone be expected to believe the good news unless they have heard? And how can they hear without a preacher? And that's not just one person standing up in the pulpit. That's a people, a prophetic people, a kingdom, a beloved community that stands up to shout the good news, 
from the riverbanks to the rooftops, from homes to hospitals, from the wilderness even to Walpole, that great good news that God can do something for us and to us and with us. What we should expect from the gospel is nothing less than life-changing, turn-everything-around, stand-me-up-on-my-feet-again news, that God so loves this world and so loves it, not in spite of its faults and failures, but with a view that sees those failures, but also sees more possibilities than we can ever ask or imagine. God is so God that God's love cannot be lost or avoided or denied forever. And if you haven't heard or you haven't believed that news yet, well, today, that is the good news for you. This generation like the generation Jesus spoke to, or that the movie Jesus Revolution is about, or that Isaac Watts' music first spoke to. Every generation experiences the word of God. And the word says that every generation is like children wanting desperately for someone to play with and finding no one who understands or is willing to respond. But Jesus says, uh, wisdom will be vindicated. I understand. I know. Jesus responds. He may not be among the popular kids. In fact, he may actively avoid them, but he knows those who are in need. He knows your need. And the good news, friends, is, is that the love of God is come. In fact, the great news is that the love of God is come. For you, for you, Everybody gets the love of God. And so what shall we say? Or what shall we sing in response to this great good news? Mm -hmm.